millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing foot osteoarthritis. Now foot osteoarthritis affects one in six adults over the age of 50. And in addition to being incredibly common, it also contributes markedly to restricted activity, disability, poor balance, risk of falling, and accounts for a substantial number of healthcare consultations. As a consequence, there's increasing interest in research into foot osteoarthritis, and we're learning a lot about the prevalence, risk factors, and treatments. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to examine foot osteoarthritis, why it happens, and what can be done about it. And we're joined by none other than Hilton Menz. Professor Hilton Menz is a podiatrist who graduated with first class honors and the university medal from La Trobe University in 1993, and completed his PhD focusing on gait patterns, balance, and falls at the University of New South Wales in 2002. And he's currently a National Health and Medical Research Council Australia Fellow. And his broad research disciplines are human movement, rehabilitation, and rheumatology, with a particular focus on musculoskeletal foot problems in older people. His research extends from laboratory-based biomechanical studies 
through to the analysis of epidemiologic data sets and conduct of clinical trials. He's published over 300 papers in podiatry, gerontology, rheumatology, and biomechanics journals, and his current research focuses on the epidemiology and management of foot disorders in older people, with a particular emphasis on osteoarthritis. Hilton, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, David. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it, and particularly appreciate it given the constraints that you have down there in Melbourne at the moment. But hopefully Zoom conversations are still permitted by Senator Dan, and we really appreciate your willingness to do this. Now, usually in the first instance, Hilton, I try to give both myself but also the listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Okay, five words. Well, I'm fairly analytical in that I do like to know how things work. I'm sceptical. I'd like to think I'm reasonably creative, persistent, and something I've probably developed over the years um, of being involved in research, and that would be pragmatic. All tremendous qualities. And as you say, for a researcher, I think particularly the persistent analytical aspects would be truly advantageous for for many people in the research context. Now, from a professional standpoint, just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis. Obviously, at the moment, it's probably a little bit strange and unusual, but what you would typically do. Okay, well, I'm a National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia research fellow based at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Uh, My background is in podiatry, but I don't actually practice anymore. I'm a full-time researcher. Uh, And as you said in the introduction, my research is uh, focused on musculoskeletal disorders of the lower limb, particularly in older people, not exclusively in older people, but most of my work is, is in that age group. So we do a whole range of different projects at Latrobe, which do extend from trying to understand the mechanisms that are responsible for things such as osteoarthritis. So that tends to be more laboratory-based biomechanical studies uh, through to conducting randomised trials. And then in more recent times, through collaborations with colleagues in the US, UK, and also here in Australia, I've developed a real interest in Uh, epidemiology, so analysing data from um, population-based data sets. But it is all very much focused on the foot because that does stem from my original interest as a clinical podiatrist. And as you say, it looks like there's been a sort of plethora of large epidemiologic data sets coming out with findings from both the UK and the large US epidemiologic cohorts presenting a lot in recent years. What do you think brought that on? I think it was really just coincidental. My involvement with Keele University came about because I attended a conference in, in Salford a few years ago and had a, a spare couple of days. So I went to visit Keele and at Keele they have a really good uh, clinical epidemiology group where they've conducted cohort studies of NEOA and HandOA and they were just about to start a, a study on FootOA. So I'm chatted to them about what we were doing at Latrobe, and then I was fortunate enough to spend six months at Kiel when they were developing the, uh, the study called the Clinical Assessment Study of the Foot. And then uh, not long after that, um, I also made contact with uh, Marion Hannon at Harvard University, who is working on the Framingham Foot Study, 
And she also had uh, a collaboration with the Johnston County uh, osteoarthritis study. So across those three big studies, they really did develop a, a real focus around trying to understand foot pain, but also the prevalence and impact of foot osteoarthritis. Yeah, we'll get into that in a moment, but it's great to have a number of different studies from different parts of the world to help to reinforce some of the estimates that you're going to give to us in a second about, particularly around the prevalence of this problem. But before we do that, I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what you like to do when you're not doing your day job. Well, we have a young family, so we have two primary school age kids. So under normal circumstances, which is not the case at the moment, but under normal circumstances, we're fairly busy from week to week just with ferrying the kids around all their various extracurricular activities, netball, swimming, piano classes, that sort of thing. As a family, we, we do love to travel. We do a lot of camping and actually we just uh, drove across the Malabar Plain and back again over Christmas time. And we'll also keep fairly fit. We're a fairly active family. And outside of that, I'm a, I'm a big reader, mostly reading uh, history, politics. So that's probably enough to uh, keep me busy outside of work. It sounds like you've got a very, very full plate. And for those listeners from overseas, if you don't know what the Nullarbor Plain is, look it up. I've never been across it. But Hilton will tell you that it's probably the most fascinating road in the world. It just goes literally straight for hundreds and hundreds of kilometres. But Hilton, you've probably got a better description than that. Yeah, look, it is, it is uh, the, I think officially there's a stretch there that is the longest straight road in the world. But the, the unique thing about our particular trip at the start of the year was most people drive across the Nullarbor Plain to get to Western Australia. But we actually struck a, a fire just before we crossed the border into Western Australia. So we had to turn around and drive all the way back. So this is uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of, of driving, but it was still a very enjoyable trip. I guess it's one of the vagaries of travelling in the summertime in Australia, right? You never know, never know when those fires are going to come out. Now, before we get into talking about prevalence estimates and how common these types of problems are, it's probably helpful for us just to get in a little bit and talk about how we actually define what foot osteoarthritis is, because there's a number of different definitions that are out there. I'm just wondering if you could just take us on a, just a brief Cook's tour about the different definitions and the ones that are more commonly used, particularly for prevalence estimates. Okay, well, um, defining osteoarthritis in the foot does have its, its own set of challenges, uh, mostly because it's such a complicated structure. So if you're looking at, say, hip osteoarthritis or knee osteoarthritis, relatively straightforward in terms of the anatomy. But with the foot, you're looking at uh, 33 different joints in each foot, which could all conceivably develop osteoarthritis. Uh, and on top of that, there's also a whole wide range of skin disorders, vascular disorders, soft tissue disorders in the foot that can create foot symptoms. So there's a real need to try and differentiate between osteoarthritis-related pain and other foot symptoms. Now, for research purposes, what we tend to do is we define osteoarthritis using a standardised radiographic atlas that we developed at La Trobe. So we, we take two X-ray views and we document the presence of things like osteophytes and joint space narrowing in five key joints. And we then combine that with localised symptoms to create what we call a symptomatic radiographic case definition. And that's really important, particularly for the foot, because if we were relying solely on foot symptoms, 
we would be picking up a whole lot of other conditions that are not osteoarthritis. So one of the, the biggest limitations, I guess, that we have with this approach is, as I said, we've got 33 joints, but we're really only measuring five of them. Now, they're probably the ones that are most commonly affected, but the reason we're focusing on them really is a fairly pragmatic decision in that they're the joints that we can see fairly easily from those two x-ray views. So the, the main message here is that any sort of prevalence estimates that we come up with with this approach will always be underestimates of the true prevalence of osteoarthritis in all of those foot joints. So as you were saying before, I mean, obviously sometimes a person may get pain but not necessarily have the x-ray features. But presumably the converse is also true that they might have the x-ray features of osteoarthritis but not necessarily have pain emanating from that joint in the foot like it is for other, other areas of the body? Yeah, it's definitely the case uh, with the foot as well in that if you were to um, just x-ray a whole group of people without any foot symptoms, you would certainly find radiographic changes uh, in those joints and the, um, the prevalence of those radiographic changes would increase markedly with age, particularly in the toes. I mean, if you're looking at the very small joints in your toes, once you get into your 70s and 80s, most people will have some sort of arthritic degeneration in those small joints. Yeah, and I think as Hilton's saying, I think from a clinical meaningful standpoint, I mean, the combination of having both uh, symptoms and, and x-ray features is pretty consistent with what tends to happen in classifying and defining disease for other joints as well. Now, that's the way it's defined. So we've got the symptomatic radiographic definition. How common is that in different parts of the foot anatomy? Well, probably the, the best estimates we have are from the clinical assessment study of the foot that I mentioned previously, which was conducted by Keeley University in the UK. So that was over 5,000 people aged 50 years and over. And when they applied the atlas uh, to that population, they came up with a figure of um, 17%. So roughly one in six people over the age of 50 had symptomatic radiographic osteoarthritis in at least one of those five foot joints. And then out of those joints, the most commonly affected joint was the first metatarsophalangeal joint, so the big toe joint, made about 8%, followed by the remaining four joints, which are all small joints in the medial part of the midfoot. Now, subsequent analysis of this data set did sort of differentiate that there's two sort of main groups, there's two main phenotypes, if you like. There's osteoarthritis that is isolated to the first metatarsophalangeal joint or the big toe joint. And then there's this polyarticular form that clusters around those midfoot joints. And that was really useful because it matches up very much with what you see clinically in that patients will generally present with either big toe symptoms or midfoot symptoms. And they do seem to be quite distinct conditions with different risk factor profiles. Well, you brought it up, Hilton. So why don't, why don't you tell me what those risk factors are? Because obviously I think there's a common community perception out there that it relates to the posture of the foot or activities that a person might do or injury or physical activity. But what, what are the risk factors for, for the, those different uh, parts of the foot anatomy? Well, foot osteoarthritis sort of shares a lot of the same risk factors as osteoarthritis and other joints. So increased age, obesity, female sex, occupational factors, those sorts of things. But in addition to those, at the big toe joint, uh, foot structure does seem to contribute. 
So people who have osteoarthritis in their big toe joint tend to have longer and wider metatarsals, phalanges and sesamoid bones. So these are all the bones that, that comprise your, your big toe joint. So that could theoretically predispose people to developing some compression in their joint when they're walking. So when they try and bend that big toe joint, if they do have these wider, longer bones, they might just jam up a lot more than, than normal. Now for the midfoot joints, uh, in addition to your um, standard osteoarthritis risk factors, uh, the other key risk factors are previous injury and also flat feet. So there does appear to be a link between having flat feet and midfoot osteoarthritis, but it's not as strong for big toe arthritis. The, I guess the common community perception about the importance of shoes, particularly the use of high heel shoes and, and like other joints in the body, uh, how genes sometimes play a role for uh, predisposition to hand and hip osteoarthritis, for example. What role does genetics and shoe wear in particular play here in terms of risks for either of those joint areas? Well, it's probably worth just making the distinction here between what we are referring to as, as big toe osteoarthritis and hallux valgus or bunions, because they are quite distinct conditions. It gets a little confusing here because someone who has hallux valgus or develops a bunion, they can go on to get osteoarthritis in that joint. But when we're talking about osteoarthritis of the big toe joint, we're actually talking about a condition where there's not that deviation of the, of the big toe. So in terms of footwear and genetics, they do seem to play a fairly significant role in predisposing someone to getting hallux valgus, but we don't know much about the link between footwear and osteoarthritis within the big toe joint that is not hallux valgus. As far as footwear is concerned for foot OA in general, there's really not much that's been done, although when we talk to patients or research participants who come in for our studies, you will occasionally find that people will attribute their foot osteoarthritis to you know, a particularly bad pair of shoes they had to wear for work. One that comes up fairly regularly is safety footwear, for example. Um, or you do find that a lot of uh, nurses who develop big toe osteoarthritis will attribute that to footwear that they work, work in because they're on their feet so much. That work, but really, it's it's an area that um, needs a bit more research in relation to the contribution of footwear to uh, foot osteoarthritis. So, obviously, the big toe osteoarthritis is more common than that of the midfoot. Of those two broad areas, which one contributes to more disability or impact on the people who are affected, and has that been evaluated? Not really, no. There hasn't really been much in terms of a direct comparison between the two. When they present, you, you will tend to find that people who have big toe osteoarthritis reported as a fairly dull, aching sort of pain. It's, it's insidious onset. It's just one of these annoying sort of chronic conditions. Midfoot osteoarthritis tends to be a little bit different in that there is a high prevalence of people reporting sort of flare-ups or reporting periods of intense pain associated with that. But uh, I'm not aware of uh, any direct comparisons to see which one has greater impact. Brilliant. All right. Now, I'm anticipating that the people out there are saying, all right, David, enough about what causes it and how common it is. What do I do about it? So 
There are loads and loads of different interventions that are out there for foot osteoarthritis. Physiotherapy, shoe wear, rocket sole shoes, thoses in the shoes, activity modification, canes, pacing, weight management, drugs, surgical interventions. And sorry, I've given you a long list there, Hilton, but can you just give us a brief idea of what works, what doesn't, and then we might get into a, a case study about big toe osteoarthritis and how you might manage that. But I guess in the first instance, just I guess a brief coverage of those different things, what works, what doesn't, what's harmful. Okay, well, um, it's probably fair to say that foot osteoarthritis has been relatively neglected from a research perspective. So we don't have much in the way of good quality data to inform clinical practice. There's only been five randomized trials for big toe arthritis and only one pilot trial for midfoot osteoarthritis. So the sort of evidence that we're relying on for this isn't fabulous. But if we start with, with exercise, that was one of the first uh, trials for big toe arthritis. And um, it was a comparison between two different exercise programs or physical therapy programs. And what that study found was that the addition of, of some gentle sort of mobilization techniques, trying to free up the joints with some manual therapy did seem to add some benefit to a, a multi-component physical therapy program. But it was a very small trial, um, very short duration of follow-ups and so not the strongest evidence. We do have better evidence for things like contoured foot orthoses, so just prefabricated uh, off-the-shelf orthoses that you might get at the pharmacy. They do seem to offer some benefit for both big toe arthritis and also midfoot osteoarthritis. Rocker sole shoes also do seem to be beneficial, although if you were to choose between an orthotic device inside your shoe and a rocker sole shoe, most people would, would prefer to go with the, the contoured orthosis inside the shoe. The adherence is much better because you can transfer them between shoes, you can you can hide them, whereas if you've got a particular occupation where you have attire constraints, you may not be able to wear rocker sole shoes because they've got a very particular style to them, but they are both effective. Um, so some people will, uh, will prefer the rocker sole shoe over the, uh, the foot orthosis. Now we've just recently completed a trial at the Trobe uh, using a different type of, of insole called a shoe stiffening insert. So this is a, a full length carbon fiber plate. It's very thin. It's very lightweight, but it's very, very stiff. So you place that inside your shoe and essentially what it's doing is it's stopping the big toe from bending. So the reason behind that is that people tend to develop the symptoms when they're at their sort of end range of motion, when they're pushing off to take the next step, that's when the joint gets uh, compressed. And so this insole just stops you from getting to that point. And the trial that we've recently completed uh, does indicate that they are quite effective and may also be effective for midfoot osteoarthritis. Uh, in terms of injections, intra-articular injections are widely used, but they don't have a lot of evidence to support them. We did a trial of uh, visco supplementation, so intra-articular injection of uh, hyaluronin, which was uh, very popular quite a few years ago for, for knees and ankles. Uh, we tried it in the big toe joint and it didn't really work. It was no more effective uh, than a placebo. And then finally, when we get to surgery, there's two trials. Uh, there was one that um, showed that arthrodesis was actually better than a joint replacement. And uh, there's also been a lot of interest in a new synthetic cartilage implant, which does seem to have some benefits over the older uh, joint replacement approaches. 
Fantastic. That was a very quick tour of a very, very broad area. And just for those people who are out there who are wondering what arthrodesis is, it's basically just fusing the big toe. So it basically just becomes completely stiff. Now, Hilton, let's imagine for one minute that a person comes into you that looks like they've got osteoarthritis of the big toe. They present with features consistent with that. What, from a diagnostic workup, perspective do you do to help make the diagnosis and are x-rays essential and what other things are you thinking about when a person comes in uh, with symptoms consistent with that that might not be osteoarthritis okay well typically what you'll see is, is someone complaining of a dull aching sort of pain and stiffness within the joint that most often occurs when they're walking not so much at rest if you have a look at the foot, the, the typical presentation is having a, a bony exostosis, so a big bony lump on the top of the joint. Although that's not always the case in the early stages, you won't see that. It takes some time to develop. The joint will be painful when you, you palpate it. When you try and pick the toe up, when you try and dorsiflex it, there'll be limited range of motion. And that sort of crepitus, that sort of crunchy sensation as you're moving the toe around. Now, there can be swelling with big toe arthritis, but it's not really, uh, it's not marked swelling. It's not really a key feature of the condition. That's more of um, something you'd be looking for as a differential diagnosis. So the main differentials you'd be considering would be things like your inflammatory arthropathy, such as you know, rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, or your uh, crystal arthropathy, such as gout being the classic one. Now, normally you'd be able to exclude those differentials on the basis of patient history or, or them having symptoms at other joints. So then you're left with, um, I guess, a working diagnosis of big toe osteoarthritis. Now, x-rays at this stage aren't absolutely necessary because um, we've previously shown that the combination of those observations is actually fairly accurate in determining whether someone has underlying radiographic disease. So we had a group of people who had big toe pain, we x-rayed them all, we then applied this set of clinical observations and we found that if people had symptoms for more than a couple of years, if they did have that bony exostosis sitting on top of the joint, limited range of motion and crepitus, you could be pretty confident that they had underlying radiographic osteoarthritis. So it's not really necessary to send off for an x-ray for big toe arthritis, it's a little bit of a different situation for the midfoot because it's not quite as clear. It's really helpful and I think hopefully gives a, a lot of clues to people both about what should be done as the, uh, the workup, but also what else to consider with that type of presentation. Now, assuming you're confident that that's what the diagnosis is, is there anything that you want to expand upon with regards, you know, the use of exercise or, or orthoses or shoe wear that you didn't say already before when you're talking about different management options specific for the first toe? Well, one of the first things you would do clinically is to, is to have a look at the patient's footwear because um, sometimes the, the shoe could be one of the causes. So if people are wearing shoes that are, are really, really flexible, uh, if they've got big toe osteoarthritis, maybe all you need to do is to address the shoes and that could prevent any need from going down the line of having foot orthoses or shoe stiffening inserts. So sometimes a change of shoes may be all that that person needs. Um, and that would be related to not only how flexible the shoe is, but also how well it fits. Because if you've got a shoe that's simply too short, then 
that dorsal compression that I was talking about before, particularly in the, the presence of having overly long metatarsals, you're basically just going to jam that big toe up in the end of the shoe. So you need to sort of do those very basic, simple observations first before you then embark on recommending these interventions. Now with exercise, uh, even though the, the evidence base isn't great, we would still um, recommend people doing things like toe strengthening exercises, trying to strengthen up the, the muscles that pull your toes down, toe plantar flex, flexion uh, exercises. It does seem to have some benefit and we have combined exercise with those shoe stiffening inserts in our recent trial. Brilliant. I think gives some people a great place to start. Now, as you mentioned before, in general, foot osteoarthritis has been under-researched, particularly as it compares to knee and hand osteoarthritis, for example. But with all of that said, what do you think are the important evidence practice gaps and research needs in the field of foot osteoarthritis? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's hard to know where to start with this because there's, there's so many gaps. I mean, we've got a reasonable understanding of, of general population prevalence from those previous studies I mentioned, and some of the key risk factors have been identified. We don't know much about prevalence in sort of particular high-risk groups, whether there's occupational groups or people who different, do different sporting activities that might be particularly susceptible. We don't know a lot about the, the mechanisms that link those risk factors to the disease itself. We don't know much about progression and what influences that. Some people may be quite stable, as other people uh, may progress fairly quickly, and it would be really useful to understand why that is the case. And as we said before, there's only a total of six clinical trials across both of those presentations to inform clinical practice. So there's plenty of work that um, still needs to be done. Well, as a researcher, Hilton, I'm, I'm sure you, you'd love to know that there's plenty of gaps out there that's going to keep you... You and your colleagues amused for many, many years to come. Now, are there any patient-friendly resources or links out there that people might be able to access that would shed further light on this topic and anything that I've forgot to ask about? Uh, probably a good place to start would be the Australian Podiatry Association. So the, uh, the address there is podiatry.org.au. Uh, they do have some really good general foot health information uh, sheets for, for patients. Uh, the College of Podiatry in the UK, so the UK equivalent, is also very good, and that's cop.org.uk. And, of course, uh, Arthritis Australia has some really good resources specific to osteoarthritis. That's really helpful, and hopefully people will be able to access that, and we will put all of those links in the show notes for anybody who didn't catch any of that. Now, moving on from foot osteoarthritis and learning a little bit more about you, Hilton, and, and what you think and what makes you tick, what's the biggest challenge you have in your specific role right now and how are you going to overcome that? Well, probably the biggest challenge, uh, and it's not only me, it's, it's a lot of researchers around, is, is securing sustainable funding. Now, I've been really fortunate in that I've had my own position funded by the, the Research Council in Australia since about 2004. But... Project funding is a little bit more hit and miss. But I think one of the, the main challenges with my specific area of interest is that it's sometimes difficult to persuade funding organisations that the foot itself is a, is a worthy area of investigation as, as maybe other parts of the body. There does seem to be a little bit of a, a stigma, if you like, associated with, with foot disorders 
or at least sort of limited recognition that they can be quite serious conditions and have an impact on the individual. So I think changing that mindset from, um, from treating foot problems as, as relatively trivial complaints has been a bit of a challenge. Well, I'm sure for the listeners out there who experience foot osteoarthritis, I'm sure the fact that it gets trivialised by others is quite concerning to them as well. Now, Hilton, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Uh, well, even though I'm not a public health researcher per se, I think over time it's, it's becoming, I guess, increasingly clear to me that a lot of the health problems that we face as a society more broadly really need to be addressed with big public policy sort of interventions. You know, things like addressing socioeconomic disadvantage, tackling obesity with sugar taxes or mandating physical activity programs in schools, you know, that, that sort of stuff, the, the big picture stuff, because obviously that has an impact on everything else that, that follows. And then from, I guess, a, a more focused perspective in my particular area, just getting people to wear shoes that fit properly properly would be a really major benefit. We, we see way too many people, particularly older people, who have all sorts of foot problems just because they're wearing shoes that don't fit them properly. I mean, from a community perspective, I completely agree with you about the importance of policy change, particularly as it relates to primary prevention and public health interventions. But just thinking about the shoes there for a second, is that a problem of the person who's selling the shoe to them? Is it a problem that they've gone out and sought the wrong shoe for the particular type of foot type? And how best to avoid that for the general public? Is there any particular rhyme, remedy or, or method to avoid that? Well, it's probably a combination of two things. It's probably a combination of, um, first of all, shoe manufacturers really don't make shoes that cater for the, the altered sort of dimensions and shape of, of the older person's foot. I mean, you can get shoes these days that have extra width fittings and that sort of thing, but the basic model of the shoe that the, uh, the manufacturer is working from um, really just has to cater for the average sort of foot type. Um, so a lot of older people, uh, particularly if they've got very broad feet or if they have things like Alex valgus or lesser toe deformity, really do have a lot of trouble finding shoes to fit them just because of the shape of their feet. So there's that aspect, but there's also the other side of it in that a lot of patients themselves will consider that they've always been a size eight. So they just keep buying the same size without fully appreciating necessarily that, that your feet can change quite a lot over time. Uh, and of course, there's the fashion element. Even if the shoes do hurt you, there's still a real drive to wear shoes that are aesthetically pleasing and fashionable, um, even if that does have uh, an impact on, on your foot health. So it's, a, it's actually a fairly complicated area. So just by me saying sort of maybe quite uh, frivolously that people should just wear shoes that fit, it's actually quite difficult to find the shoes that fit. And it's also difficult to uh, convince people sometimes that they need to do that. So, so let's work on the assumption that, you know, a number of the people who are listening have a, a big broad forefoot or a big bunion over their, their first toe. Are there any particular brands of shoe or particular places that people should go to access shoes that might be more accommodating for that particular foot type? 
Well, so the first thing to do would be to consult someone who can actually measure your shoe size properly and measure your foot size properly. So be that a, a podiatrist or a pedorthist or someone like that. Um, so you can actually get a really accurate picture as to what sort of shoe that you need. Now, there are um, a few brands around that cater for different width fittings, but some people will eventually need to have um, a shoe that is custom made for them um, through a medical grade footwear manufacturer. But it is something that that is it's improving um, in that there are probably more manufacturers around that are looking into that particular market, probably as a result of the, you know, the aging of the population and you know, the, the number of um, baby boomers that we have, there, there is a real need to sort of um, make sure that the market reflects that need. That's really, really great advice. So thanks for that, Hilton. Now, one of my favourite questions that I love to ask people is really just trying to work out, I guess, what makes them tick. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Probably one of the things that, that motivates me is, is a desire to demonstrate, I guess, the value of the profession of podiatry because it's not a glamorous profession. It's, it's relatively small. It's not particularly well-resourced but it really can have a pretty substantial impact on quality of life, particularly in an older person where a podiatry treatment could be the difference between them being housebound or being physically independent. So it's, it can have a real impact. So part of what I do is, is driven by that, but it's not, it's not all altruistic of course, because the, the fact is I do actually really enjoy it. I, I enjoy doing research I really enjoy collaborating with people. It's one of the great aspects of, of being a researcher. I love writing papers and I really like presenting my work at conferences and that sort of thing. So it's a combination of, of trying to um, improve, I guess, the, the standing of podiatry and the recognition of podiatry and uh, helping patients, but it's also because I really enjoy it. Yeah, I couldn't imagine loving a job any more than I do as, as a researcher. It's, we're given so many opportunities to stimulate our brains and to travel and to network and also importantly to make a difference and so strongly agree with all your comments there now Hilton if you could have a billboard with anything on it what would it say and why oh this isn't really an original idea but I do really like the one that says I just got to get the wording right here I think it says be kind because everyone you meet is is fighting a battle that you know nothing about now, I really like that because it is very easy to get frustrated or annoyed with people's behaviour or their actions. And if you had a bit more insight as to what was actually going on behind the scenes in that person's life, then maybe you'd be a lot more tolerant. So I think that's probably a useful message. Sagely advice. And I think we can probably all use that on a, on a regular basis. Now, in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people out there with osteoarthritis? Uh, probably, probably two things I'd say. The first would be a very common piece of advice that I'd imagine most of uh, the people on your podcast would, would also agree with, and that is to keep physically active. Keeping physically active has so much benefit across all different aspects of your health. So where possible, I would advise people to keep active. And then the second would be, and this I guess reflects my bias a little bit, but that is to explore sort of non-surgical treatment options as much as possible before uh, electing to have surgery. I mean, surgery obviously does help a lot of people, 
Um, but we, uh, within the, the world of podiatry, we probably do see a lot of patients who perhaps elect to go down the surgical route a little bit early and maybe could have explored a few other things first. Really, really helpful advice. And I'm hoping people pick up on both elements of what you just described. But Hilton, I really want to thank you very much for your time, your thought, uh, the insights you provided. I think it'll provide a lot of value for people out there with osteoarthritis of the foot. And I want to encourage you to continue to look after yourself down there in Melbourne in lockdown and, uh, and your family as well. Do take care. Thanks very much, Dave. It's been great talking to you. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 